Everybody standing if you can, as our custom is as we read the scriptures this morning. Welcome to Grace Point. Glory to God. Glad you're here. Wes did an awesome job, didn't he, last Sunday, sharing the word. And he's up in South Carolina today. I think his brother's getting married or something. And so he's, he's uh, up there. So, but he did an awesome job. I got to listen to the message and just did, did fantastic. And praise God for him. Amen. Uh, Matthew chapter 11 and verse 28, 29, and 30. And then when you find that, we're also going to read a couple of verses out of Hebrews, the fourth chapter, verses 9, 10, and 11. Today we're going to be talking about learning to rest in Christ. Learning to rest in Christ, resting in Him. Jesus in Matthew 11 this is, of course, prior to him going to the cross. They're still under the old covenant because he hadn't died yet. And he says, come to me. He's the only one that can say that. Amen. Come to me. And then he says, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Um, he's not talking about rest from your eight to five job or all you that have a job or work long hours. It has nothing to do with the physical at all. And the rest he's calling them to is stop trying to get God to like you by what you do or don't do. Stop laboring under the law because there is no righteousness except his. He says, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest, there it is again, for your souls. And then he says this amazing statement, my yoke is what? And my burden is light. So this that you and I are in, the new covenant, is easy. I said it's easy. It's effortless. You don't have to do anything other than receive it. See, you see how that right there, that right there shows me we still do not get it. When you tell the church or somebody, this, this is easy. You know why? Because you grew up hearing people tell you how hard it is to live for God. If you hang around the church, I used to hear testimony when I was a young boy in the church. You know, they would stand up and have testimony. Should have been called praise the devil time. Because that's mostly, what well, I'm just saying in my church, maybe we were just weird. But most of those people talked about how hard it was to live for God. They would always kind of end it. Those old timers like, y'all pray that I'll hold true to the end. They would say things like, the devil's been on my back all week. Am I telling the truth or not? And they would mention the devil like ten times, never mention God one time. And we were supposed to be giving testimony and praise to him. Oh, come on. Hebrews 4, chapter 9 says, New Testament, this is post the cross, the Christ has been resurrected. Now he says, there remains, therefore, a what? A rest for the people of God. For he who has, notice this phrase, entered his rest, has himself also ceased from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent, the New King James Version says. The King James says, let us labor. To enter that rest. It's almost like an oxymoron. We're laboring to rest. But you're not laboring to rest. You're laboring to enter into that rest that's already provided for us. Let us, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. So today, I really know the Lord is on this today. It's been confirmed so strong. What an awesome worship time today. It always is, but today just seemed like off the chart to me. It's all wonderful. Um, I want to help you today in your fellowship with God, your fellowship with God. Um, I want you to understand this, and then I'm going to let you sit down. Listen, fellowship is not the same thing as relationship. You can be related to someone by birth, and never have fellowship with them. Some of us live that in our lives. We're related by birth, but we don't fellowship daily, weekly, or some ever 
with the people that we are in relationship by birth with. Now, if you're not careful, the same thing can happen to those who related to God through Christ. In other words, we're related to God by the new birth, the spiritual birth, but you can be spiritually related to God and fail to have fellowship with him in your daily walk. And I felt like God was saying to me this week that he wants us to, to help us to re-energize your devotional life with him. To re-energize your devotional life. And listen, I'm not talking about that foolishness that a lot of us grown up with and you still hear constantly those people that don't understand about the goodness of God and what Jesus accomplished on the cross. They'll tell you something like, okay, you have sinned and you're out of fellowship, they say, with God. And you got to do something to get back into fellowship with God. Just forget all that because that's garbage and it's none of that's in the Bible and that's just religion. And really when they're using the word fellowship, they don't mean fellowship. They actually mean relationship. So they're falling in and out of relationship a hundred times a day because that's how often you mess up or more. Don't look at me in that strange religious face. Your relationship with God is not based on that. Relationship is, of, is based on Jesus. Amen? So, Father, help us to rest in you. Help us to stop striving to get you to like us because you already loved us while we were yet sinners. And help us to rest in the finished work of Jesus. And we give you praise, Holy Spirit, for helping us in Jesus' name. Amen? Look at somebody. Tell them welcome to Grace Point. Give them a big smile. Hallelujah. You know, I, I can't believe that I'm getting this old, but I've actually been in some official capacity of ministry for over 38 years. I've been uh, preaching uh, the gospel for over 32 years, and uh, man, that's, that's, that's a, as they say, that's a minute. It's been a long time, and I've seen a lot of ministries and ministers and I've seen, a minister, you know, I've seen those ministries and ministers come and go. And I don't mean by death, although I've seen that as well. But I'm talking about, I've just seen them where they're, they're not even in the ministry today. And when I analyze why they're no longer around, most of the time it comes down to just one thing. They had a great working relationship with Jesus, but a lousy friendship with him. And their whole relationship in their mind with Jesus was based on what they did for the Lord, what, you know, they're, they're working for Jesus. And um, aren't you glad, though, that we're not human doings, we're human beings? And God wants us to rest in just being his child, being, you know, born again. And I want to make this statement to you, walking, learning to walk with the Lord while you're in the Lord. Walking with the Lord Talking about that fellowship, that koinonia, the Greek word. But walking with the Lord while you're in the Lord. Listen, you're in the Lord. There's nothing I'm going to say to try to make you feel, uh, you know, doubt your relationship or feel condemned. L listen to me. Romans 8 and 1 says that, therefore, there is now how much condemnation? None. Nada. Zilch. Zero. <laughs> There's none. So don't receive none. From anybody, regardless of who they are, what their title is. If you're in Christ, don't receive any condemnation from anybody, ever. Friend, foe, person, family, devil, demon, church, preacher, whatever. Don't receive any condemnation because it's not in Christ. It's not from God. So don't receive any. There is none. Don't receive it. Okay? Okay. Uh, Every situation, listen to me, every situation in mine and your life is useful. There is no circumstance that you find yourself in this morning in which God cannot speak to you and in which God cannot reveal himself to you. Do you understand that nothing can separate you from God's love? Nothing. Now Romans 8, verse 38 and 39, two verses. I know most of you are really familiar with it. But I might can point out something that you might have not maybe initially noticed. Now, Paul goes to great lengths in this eighth chapter to tell you that you're secure in Christ. I told you he started off telling you there's no condemnation for you. 
Why? Because you're a good person? No, because you're in Christ. That's the difference, y'all. Jesus makes all the difference. He says, for I am persuaded. Now, some of you just need to get persuaded. Some of you have heard, but you've not been persuaded yet. You've heard the sale pitch, but you haven't signed the contract. I'm persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now that's so good it makes you want to bite the cushion on the seat in front of you. But look in verse 38. He said, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, principalities nor powers, nor things present nor things to come. Anybody see anything missing there? Oh, yeah. That's right. Crawford got it. it see, if I was writing that verse, I would have wrote and said, Nor things past, nor things present, nor things to come. Right? Because that would have covered past, present, and future. But it doesn't say that. And the Holy Spirit's a lot smarter than all of us. So he meant for it to be written like this. Isn't that interesting that he doesn't mention the past? He says, nothing can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus, those things that are present, nor things to come. Why, did, why is the past obviously left out? Because you don't have one. <laughs> There's another chunk going out of the seat in front of you. You don't have a past. You don't have a past because Jesus done away with not only your, listen, your past, but he killed you off. God didn't want to spend the time it would take to fix you, therefore he went ahead and killed you. Ivory, there's a chunk of people here don't understand what I just said. God didn't want to take the time. He said, no, let's don't fix them. Let's just kill them. See, a lot of Christians know that Jesus died for them. But they don't know that they died with him. And the New Testament is so clear on that. The Bible said we died with Christ. We were buried with Christ. And we were resurrected with Christ. And we put on a demonstration of that every time we baptize a person. And we are physically acting out and demonstrating the reality that happened to us when we received Christ Jesus. We walk into the pool of death, it's a grave. All of our sins are there. And we stop breathing. You have to hold your breath to be baptized. Because we don't sprinkle around here. We immerse, because that's what the word baptism means, to immerse fully. So we instruct you that if you want to do this right and not choke to death, don't try to breathe under the water. You're not a fish. So you cease breathing. You hold your breath. How many knows if you're not breathing, you're dead? And you stop breathing and we push you under where you cannot live under there unless we let you up. And we don't let you up until we hear you bubble the word tithe. I'm teasing. Just seeing if you're listening. We hold you under the water. Some, I've been to the baptism service where they hold them longer than other folks. We need to train the preacher. Sometimes the people are like, is he going to let me up? You're not breathing. You're buried. And then you're brought out of that. And the first thing you do is breathe. Resurrection. New life in Christ Jesus. That's what, that's what this is about. And you don't have a past. Now, now listen to me, I'm going to make some statements, 
I don't have the time to go to every, I can, I've, I've done it many times. I'm not going to say anything, I'm going to say it differently, but I'm really, I really just have one message. The grace of God. God's not working on your sin. God's not working on your sin. He's already finished that job. When Jesus hung on the cross and the last words he said is, it is finished, he wasn't lying. He really meant, it is finished. When, when John the Baptist, the first announcement, the first thing that was said publicly concerning the Messiah, Jesus Christ, was his first cousin, John the Baptist, as now we know him, pointed at him and said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Now, did he take it away or not? Did that sin of the world, the sin that you and I have done, was it done in the world? Or did you do it on another planet? So the sin that you've committed, did you do it on this world? Did you do it in this world? So that had to include your sin. If Jesus took away the sin of the world, then he took away your sin. And by the way, the church, and I don't, that's a whole other message. I've devoted a whole chapter, I think, in my book concerning this one thing. That sin is a noun, not a verb. The church doesn't know what sin still is. They think sin is an action that they did. I did something, therefore I sinned. No, sin is an entity. The first person to ever say the word sin was God himself. And he said it to a murderer who had murdered his brother. And the word sin there, and it is a big deal, is a noun. And God even personifies it as a he. He said he desires your destruction. He, sin, life at the door. You must overcome him. Read it in your King James Version to see if I didn't just tell you the truth. It's Cain and murdered Abel. And God describes sin as an entity. I told you this over and over in the book of Romans, Paul addresses sin more than any other book of the New Testament. And he names the word sin in the New King James Version 39 times he uses the word sin. 38 times it's a noun. A person, a place, or thing. When the Bible said he taketh away the sin of the world, pointing to Jesus, sin is a noun there and it's not sins plural. Jesus dealt with sin. That entity. That thing. That destruction. The Bible said sin entered into the world through Adam's disobedience, and death through sin. Jesus is not about death, he's about life. I've come that they might have life. Jesus didn't come that they might have forgiveness. He did forgive us. But it, the problem was not in the garden that they had sinned and needed forgiveness. The problem in the garden was they had died and they needed life. Jesus said, I've come that they might have life. They might have it more abundantly. That scripture that we all talk about, whosoever believeth in God, they'll not perish but have life everlasting. What part of everlasting don't we understand? If Jesus gives you life, he's only got one kind of life to give you, and that's eternal or everlasting life. So God's not working on your sin. He's already finished that. And God is not sin conscious. That's what Hebrews chapter 6 does such a good job. And all really the whole book of Hebrews. The Bible says if, if, if the sacrifice worked, there would be no, no more consciousness of sin. It said that's why they continually year after year brought the sacrifice and the old covenant of bullocks and goats and lambs because there was a, a constantly remembrance of sin from year to year. And it said if the sacrifice that they had brought had actually worked, there would have been no more consciousness of sin. Is that right? God's not sin conscious because he's not an evangelical. I think I'm going to write a blog. I got it. I just haven't pulled the trigger on it yet. I have to get, build myself up where I can take the, what comes with it. But I come up with titles sometimes, try to make people aggravated enough they'll read it. Just so they can try to prove me wrong. But I want to write one that says, you know, the title of it is God is not a Christian. Because God is not a Christian. And three-fourths of y'all are scared and you don't know whether to say amen or not. Just look straight ahead. God's not a Baptist. 
God's not a Pentecostal. God's not an evangelical, a Protestant, a Catholic. God is not any of those things. God did not become a man to come to the earth to start a new religion called Christianity. For many people, Christianity is nothing but another religion. No different than a lot of the religions of the world. But true Christianity, true to be born of the Spirit, to be a follower of Jesus, that's what it's about. A lot of people are Christians by faith, by their religion, but they're not born again. They've not been born of the Spirit, born from above. God's not working on your sin. Jesus already did that. Jesus took away the sin of the world, and he's not letting anybody or anything bring it back. He took it away. So nothing's going to bring it back. Now, he's, if he's not working on my sin, Pastor Dale, what's he doing? He's elevating the new that he placed on the inside of you. He's revealing his gift of righteousness to you. He's not trying to fix you. I told you he killed you off, and he knows you're dead because he watched you die. Christ not only died for you, he died as you. You were crucified with Christ. That's what the Bible says. It's not what religion says. They keep telling you to, you know, crucify yourself, crucify the old man. They, 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 they'll, they'll get you so busy trying to kill something that's already dead. They'll tell you and swear to you that you still have a sin nature. And then they will point to your sin to prove it. When the Bible says you don't have a sin nature, you are now have been made a partaker of the divine nature. You don't have a sin nature, you have a sin habit. The wonderful thing about habits is they can be broken. And how is God going to break your sin habit now that you're born again? By pointing out your sin, talking about your sin, making you sin conscious, focusing on your sin. No, he's going to focus on his son. And he's going to focus on the gift that he gave you, which is the gift, free gift of righteousness. And he's going to elevate that. And how you know that somebody is speaking on behalf of God, the Old Testament prophet said this, this, God says in one translation, you want to be my mouthpiece, you want to be my mouth, you want to be my spokesman? He said, these are the people that are my spokesman. They extract the precious from the vile. They see a field full of dirt, but what... They don't talk about and preach about the dirt. They, they speak to that one pearl. And they will buy the field to get the pearl. Whatever you speak to in a person will rise up. That's what, that's what God's doing. He's elevating what he put on the inside of you. God is speaking to that part of you that he put in you when you were born again. That spirit person that's born again, that, that new you on the inside of you. See, guys, that's why it's called a new covenant. We're not trying to fix the old covenant and give it a paint job. It's a new covenant. It's the New Testament that you hold in your lap. New Testament. You are called a new creature. New creation in Christ. Hebrews says that we are now in a new and living way. See how you see some emphasis on one word there, new? Ephesians 4.24 says put on the new man. The new man, not the old man. This is a brand new man. This is a new man. See, it's, it's confusing because we've still got the old body. But when you get to heaven, you're going to get a new body. Isn't that wonderful? In heaven, round will no longer be a shape. <laughs> you're going to have a new body. I love it when it says his mercies are made new. Every morning is new. You need to learn to live in the newness. Walk in the newness. Talk newness. It's a new and living way. It's not the old way trying to make it in the new way. It's a new and living way. I kept hearing this phrase and all week, never said it before. You're hearing it for the first time. But I kept hearing this in my spirit. I felt like God was sending me to tell him this, now that you have received the Prince of Peace, now receive the peace of the Prince. 
Now that you have received the Prince of Peace, now receive the peace of the Prince. Not because it has not been given, but you're not walking in the benefit that's been given to him. Hebrews 4 keeps saying this phrase over and over, enter into that rest. There remains a rest for the people of God. Now enter into that rest. Enter into that rest. All of you guys, how many of you entered into this sanctuary today? You entered. But now that you're here, we provided a nice cushion seat for you to rest. You're not having to do the preaching this morning. You can rest. I'm doing it for you. You can just rest. The clearest picture of us resting in Christ, and I love videos. And so to me, the Old Testament is full of videos of what the New Testament talks about in doctrine. And so resting in Christ starts as a picture, a video, by a man named Noah. And in Genesis 6, we're not even into the, we're just in six chapters in the Bible. And now we have a man called Noah, whose name means rest. <laughs> Literally, here we are, and he says, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And then once he found that grace, then God provided instruction on building that ark, that boat. And he tells Noah to enter in to the ark. He says, come in. He actually calls him into the ark. He says, you come into the ark, you and your family. And why? There are eight souls, the scripture says. Now, most of you know this, but from biblical numerology, what does the number eight mean? What kind of beginning? There we go again. So in type and shadow, we got everything here. So we got a new beginning, and it's going to take them to a new world order. In the first world order that Noah and his family had been born and lived in, it did not rain. The ground was watered from below and with the dew. But as far as rain falling, it didn't happen. No such thing as a tornado for the Weather Channel folks to get excited about or a hurricane or all that stuff. No, it didn't happen. Totally different atmospheric conditions. There was a tremendous change. And when they did eventually, a year later, land on that mount and exited the ark, they were in a new world order, a new and living way, a new way. A lot of things changed. The ark, listen to me, is a type of Jesus. When you enter into the ark, there's only one way to get into the boat that Noah built. I don't care how many kindergarten pictures you see, there's only one door and one window. There's not 12 windows down the side with 14 giraffes hanging their heads out, smiling at everybody. I remember many years ago we started a Christian school that's still going on today in Cook County. It's known as, uh, I think it's known as Cook Christian Academy today. When I started it, it was Cornerstone Christian Academy. And um, People, when I first started school, man, they, here they come. They're bringing me all kind of pictures to hang up in the school, which I appreciated. Honest to God, every one of those art pictures they brought me were just all lies, and I throw them in the dumpster in the back. I'm talking about some nice pictures. Because I care more about the image that those children saw in their mind. Why is it so important? Because you can't build a Jesus like you want. There is just one Jesus, and that art depicts Jesus himself. So you enter in through the, the, the door of the ark. Where was the door in the ark? It's in the side. Where did we enter into Christ? In the side. You remember when Moses said, God, show me your glory? You remember that? And God said, come here. He said, I'm going to show you my glory and my goodness. Is what God. Moses said, God, show me your glory. God said, I'm going to show you my goodness. I will cause my goodness to pass before you. And he said, uh, I have a rock beside me. And I'm going to place you in the cleft. Come on now. Cleft of the rock. And then I'm going to cover you with my hand. And from that position, I will cause you to see all my goodness. Who is that that sits beside God on his right hand? Who is that rock that followed them in the wilderness? And who is that rock that was cleft or broke open that Moses struck? That's Jesus. How did Moses know in the beginning God created heaven and earth? Because Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. 
But it's not like Moses was sitting around, you know, writing it down. But in Christ, you see all things. Past, present, future. Because there is past, present, future. There is no such thing as past, present, future in God. They're just now. Now faith is. Now. And so, you got to see that in the ark is a perfect picture. Because listen, listen to me. Now, when, when, when God told Noah to build the ark, he said to cover that wood with pitch. Everybody say pitch. Now, that's a Hebrew word. The Hebrew word is, is kafar, kafar. And, and, and that exact word in other places, listen to me, in the Old Testament is translated uh, atonement. Now, some New Testament Christians get pretty confused about this, but there is no such thing as an atonement in the New Testament because the word atonement literally means to cover. In one of the chapters in my book, again, I said, the, the myth I put was your sins are not, not under the blood of Jesus. A lot of times you'll hear people in church say, our sins are under the blood. You know, your sins are under the blood. Or sometimes when I was growing up, somebody would sin, and, they, and another brother in the church would say, listen, brother, you need to put that sin under the blood. They, and what they meant is you need to confess it, repent it, put it under the blood. But see, that's like my wife don't want you putting your dirt under the rug because the dirt's still there. The dirt hadn't gone anywhere. We just covered it. And then the old covenant, what happened to sin was it didn't go anywhere. They just covered it. It was covered with the blood of bulls and goats and, and lambs and, and animals, but it didn't remove sin. <laughs> but when the Lamb of God came, he lifted the rug up because he's the only one that could look at sin and deal with it. And he, he annihilated it. He itemized it. He obliterated it. He done away with it. There is no sin to talk about. Your sin is not under the blood. Your sin is no more. God said in the old covenant, he prophesied that when the new covenant came, he said your sins are going to be like something thrown into the depths of the ocean, never to be remembered against you anymore. You'll not see them anymore. They won't be there anymore. Man, if I don't make you happy, your wood is wet, brother. Come on, you don't understand. Jesus did it all. So in the new covenant, so listen, when, you, when they went into the, into the ark, Wonderful thing you'll notice about the ark is you can walk from the front to the back of the ark, but there is no helm. Let me put it, there's no steering wheel, y'all. There's no place for the captain to stand with the big wheel, and there's no rudder on the ark. That means you're not driving. You're just riding. It's called resting in Christ. You just riding in the boat. You ain't steering the boat. You ain't paddling the boat. You ain't hoisting the sail because there is no sail. We don't need the wind. We don't need your help. We just need you to enter in and rest. Just ride. Just ride. Some of you are trying to work so hard to get God to like you. I know this. You ever been locked up with your family? Art was a big boat, but I guarantee you it got small because they were on it for over a year. A lot of the church forgets that. Read the Bible. Over one year, over 365 days, they were on that boat together locked in. Noah did not close the door. God sealed him in. God shut the door. And God sealed him in. And three, listen, three times in the New Testament, the Bible says that we are sealed in Christ by the Holy Spirit. You have been sealed by God. You can't save yourself and you can't unsave yourself. If God shuts the door and seals it, you can't open it. You're sealed. You're doomed for blessing. <laughs> You're just absolutely doomed to be blessed. Blessings are going to overtake you, run over you, back over you, run over you again. You're blessed of the Lord. You're the beloved of God. You got no choice. Sorry. You can't drown because judgment waters will never touch you. You've been sealed in. 
The waters are on the outside, you're on the inside. They're out there, you're in the boat, you're in Christ. The judgment of God will never ever touch you because you're in Christ. Listen, listen, God put you in Christ, which is the hope of glory, and then he put Christ in you. Let me say it like this. God put you in Christ. God put Christ in you and then put you in Christ. Is that what it says? You, right now you're going, ah, that don't make sense. God's not trying to make sense. God's illogical. God doesn't make sense. No. I told you a couple weeks ago, God is not rational, logical. God's full of himself. I love the story of Gideon. I told you, 32,000 warriors he's got. And he's got an army much, much larger than that coming against him. And so God looks at Gideon and, and you know, and see all these soldiers and he's like, I know these guys. Man, if they somehow stumble upon a victory, they'll be high-fiving themselves for 10 years. Talking about they bad, we bad, we bad to the bone. Look at what we did. So God says, uh, Gideon, you got too many soldiers. What? I'm already outnumbered now. Well, tell everybody that is scared, afraid, go home. If it was modern terms, all you would smell was rubber burning in the parking lot. Listen, 22,000 soldiers took off to the house. Like, yes, I won't die today. They're out of there. Now he's left with 10,000. He is really outnumbered now. Got 10,000 left. He's like, that doesn't make sense, God. Why would you do this to me? And God says, you still got too many. You'll still convince yourself that it was your strategy that won. I tell you what, carry them down and I'm going to watch how they drink water. So carry them down to the river and tell them all to get a drink. Imagine you choose your army based on how they drink water from a river. And everybody that scooped up water with their hands and lapped it like a dog, God said, keep those guys, send the rest of them to the house. And when you got through, we got 300 dog lappers. Gideon's 300. He is so outnumbered. It, and then God says, now that you got 300, now you can surround your, the, the enemy. Gideon's like, I couldn't surround them when I had 32,000. And he's like, well, I can see, you know, God's like, I can see Gideon, you're, you know, you're pretty uh, bummed out. I, I think you need a prophecy. Would you like a prophecy? Gideon's like, yes, I need a prophecy. No, go down to the enemy's camp and get a prophecy. He's like, God, could I not get one right here? Well, technically you could, but it will be more interesting for us in heaven to watch you go down to the enemy's camp and get a prophecy. So he sneaks down with a couple of his men to the enemy's camp at night. And he just happens to stop behind the tent of one of the soldiers' tent, and he hears this guy waking up. And this guy's like, man, I just had this weirdest dream. I want to tell you about it. And they said, what was the dream? They said, I saw this big loaf of bread rolling down the hill and it just rolled right into our camp and it knocked over our tents. <laughs> and the soldier's like, well, what does that mean? And one soldier says, I know what it means. That's nothing more than the sword of Gideon. And we're going to be defeated. So Gideon's like, it's a round roll of bread but it's the sword of Gideon. I'd have never got that out of that dream. But that's how prophecy works. So Gideon now has a prophecy from God. And then he's like, okay, we're going to must up. God's going to like super power us with some nuclear weaponry here. We're going to, there's got to be something awesome here that we're going to use against this. So God says, you got a, a, a picture to, you know, like draw water, you know, put water in. Yeah, we got a lot of those. Uh, you got a lamp? Yeah, we got a Coleman lantern. Everybody's got a Coleman lantern. They were issued to us, you know. He says, well, I want you to take that lamp and stick it down into that picture, that vase, that, and then go and attack your enemy with that. 
You think God's logical? God is full of himself. And I want to tell you something. Listen to me. I don't know if you're tracking me this morning. Listen to me. I love about the sovereignty of God. Most of the way the church teaches that's just really messed up. But I want to tell you one thing that we're, we really need to help in is the, the majesty of God. The majesty of God. God is so confident in his ability. He does this over and over in the new covenant. Tells Joshua to take the city of Jericho and then as soon as they cross Jericho there to, to face this huge city, that is so, the walls are so wide, they said three chariots with horses could race on top of the wall simultaneously, side by side, never fear running off. Archaeological proves that. That's how wide the walls were. And God said, the way I'm going to give you this city is just going to, you're just going to shout. <laughs> and, and, and what was something that Joshua told all his men like as soon as they cross and they're looking at this massive city that God says they're going to take for God, He says, uh, "I want all the men to come. I got a men's meeting tonight." And so all the men show up at the men's meeting. So Gideon is standing there. He's got both hands behind his back, and he says, "Guys, thank y'all for coming. I just wanted to talk with you tonight. I feel like I got a word from the Lord before we go and attack the city. I need all of you to drop your trousers." What kind of meeting is this? It's okay. It's, it'll be all right. Just, it'll, it'll be okay. Drop our trousers. Yeah, I'm going to circumcise all you guys. I'm going to circumcise you. So all these men, grown men, not the little baby at the nursery don't remember it, but all these grown men get circumcised. Now right after you get circumcised, I've heard the testimonies from grown men that have done that. You don't really want to go ride the horsey nowhere. You don't even want to ride your bicycle for a few days. Now listen. Now hear me. I'm just telling you Bible stuff. All these men, these soldiers, are so vulnerable, the enemy can see them, and they couldn't fight their way out of a paper bag to save their life. And God chooses to do that then in the sight of their enemy. Because he's full of himself. And he's totally confident in his ability to protect you and care for you. And he wants you to know it's not about you. And it's not your strength. It's not your intelligence. It's not your pedigree. It's not your genealogy. It's not any of that. It's Christ. And God wants you to learn how, with the help of the Holy Spirit, to rest in Christ. Now I want to tell you, here at Grace Point, we have the best counselor ever. Best in the world counselor right here. And he's called the Holy Spirit. And he is your counselor. He is your helper. And he will guide you into truth that will make you free. And he is the one, listen, he is the one that's going to help you to learn how to yield yourself to the newness that God put on you when you got saved or born again. When you get on the ark, just rest. Now listen to me. I told you, and, and people can disagree, whatever. I just know people, though. And Noah was still people, and his family was still people. A lot of those guys just, you know, his family, those eight souls, they just got on the boat because Noah said to, and they just thank God they did. I believe your family will follow you in the kingdom, just like Noah's family followed him into the ark. If it was left up to them alone, they probably would have never walked into the ark, but because their dad did, they followed their dad. And I want to say something to dads that are listening to me, and moms too. Your children are following you into wherever you're leading them. Just think about where you're leading them. You know that old thing like, do what I say, not what I do, it just doesn't work. You can't sit there, you know, and do something that they're watching you do and you tell them to do otherwise. It, you know that doesn't work, right? You just go into that ark and you just rest. But I'm sure that Noah, being a human, fell down, lost his temper, found his temper, whatever. They're having to care for all those animals. There is poop to be dealt with. 
You put hay in one end, something else comes out the other end. I just suspect that they would get rid of that somehow or another on their year-long journey. I don't think they allowed it to accumulate. There was one wind in the top. I suspect that's where they dealt with it. They sure couldn't open the door, so that leaves them no other option. Um, but yet, even though Noah fell down in the ark probably many times, I, he never fell out. You can rest in Christ. You're not going to lose your salvation. No more than Noah and his family could fall out of the boat. You might fall out with one another. You may have family problems. You may yell, cuss, scream, holler. But you're going to be okay because you're in Christ. And the Holy Spirit's there to help you and to lead you. Now, I want you to stand to your feet. I'm going to ask you to do something that's going to be a little bit different. I don't think it's going to be weird, but it could be. I told you I dream weird stuff about these services sometimes. God really loves you guys. He knew that you would be here this Sunday. He knew before you knew that you would be here. And he knew before I did what I would preach. And he knew he would be here to hear what I preached. The spirit of prophecy is here to proclaim and prophesy and to edify, to comfort, and to build you up. But what I saw was not so much an individual thing. And I heard myself speaking prophetically to the whole congregation as a whole. The Lord is here. You feel him. You feel him, don't you? You feel how he just rained down on us? He's getting ready to bless you. <laughs> He's committed to bless you. Could I just ask you, maybe, just close your eyes so you're not distracted? Because you're supposed to get a prophecy. You are. You. God says, I see everything in your life, and there's nothing that worries me. I want you to know. that Christ is in you. And just as surely as Noah found favor with me, you have found favor in my eyes. And I want you to believe what I believe about you. I want you to know that with every problem in your life, there also comes a promise and a provision for that problem. Stop interacting with the problem and start interacting with the promise. You have allowed the problem to become bigger than me in your eyes. And then you come to me in prayer and you talk to me about the problem. I don't want to talk to you about the problem. I want you to talk to me about my promise. I am going to stretch you even further. Oh yes, it's going to be a stretch. But all Christians have stretch marks. Stretch marks come from carrying and birthing something bigger than they themselves. Some of you have said this statement. You have said, I will be glad when this is over. I will be glad when this is over. Now look at me. I'm not condemning you for saying that. I confess to you that I have said that more times than I want to admit to. But I felt the Lord say to me last night, even this morning, that many of them that will be there today have said this statement, I'll be so glad when this is over. I'll be so glad that when this season of my life is over. And I love you, and I've said that too, and I know what you mean. 
but hear me. What you're really saying is when you say, I'll be glad when this is over, is you, you're saying you can't be glad now. When the Bible says, in everything, give thanks. Not for everything. It would be stupid to give thanks for a problem or disease or difficulty. We're not stupid. God's not telling you to be stupid. We don't give thanks for, but in everything, give thanks. And rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, because you didn't believe me the first time, rejoice. And so you... So, so this rest that I'm talking about is more of a mindset. It's more of the way of thinking. Jesus came to earth saying, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. But now I say unto you. Jesus said you've got to think differently. The word repent means to think differently. You've got to think differently. This is what God said in the old covenant, talking about the new covenant when it comes. He said, come here. Let's reason together. For though your sins be like scarlet, red as scarlet, double-dipped crimson red, in the new covenant, listen, they shall be white as snow, white as wool. Remember that? Now, when God said, come, let us reason together, and God says, though your sins be red, double-dipped crimson red, they shall be white. Now, what's God saying here? Now, don't miss this. It's going to be really deep. This is what God said. I make red things white. Only Liz got that. That's what God said. See, you, you try to make it too hard. God says, I'm the God that can make red things white. And I don't care how red they are, I can make them white as snow. I'm the God, so I'm trying to say it, God's saying to you guys so you'll get it. Okay, we got red things. And red's not good. Red means stop. <laughs> I'm going to make it white. I'm going to make red things white. I'm going to make sinful people sinless people. I'm going to make sinners saints. I'm going to make unrighteous people righteous people. I'm going to make people that are not in relationship with me in relationship with me. I'm going to make children that are not sons and daughters to be sons and daughters. I'm going to give people that have no life eternal life. God said, that's what I'm doing. And I need you to reason with me and think differently because though your sins were red, now they're white. You don't have any. Your sin account has zero balance. Don't talk to me about it. I don't know what you're talking about. My son took it away. Now, what I want to talk to you about is the gift that I gave you, my righteousness. I want to elevate that. And I'm only going to speak to you about the things that I've put in you. And I'm going to speak to those things so those things will rise up. That's what God's saying to you today. So if you've been one of those specifically that said, I'd be so glad when this is over. God wants you to be glad now. Be glad in it, not for it, but just be glad. For this is the day the Lord has made. I will be, I just choose to be glad in it. God says you need to laugh more. You need to laugh more. You, you need to laugh more because the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. The Lord's never non-joyful. It's not the joy of you. We say, I don't feel joyful. Well, I ain't talking about your joy. I've said the joy of the Lord is your strength. His joy, his joy is your strength. His joy. So unless you can convince yourself that he's sad sitting on a broke bench, in depression, you're going to have a hard time because God's still sitting on the golden throne and he is full of joy. And he said, I write these things unto you, John said, whereby that your joy may be full. I write these things to you. This is the reason I gave you the Bible so you would know how I am. I'm joyful all the time. I give you a new day every day. My mercies are new every morning. 
Everything's new. Things present, no things to come because there is no past. You don't have one. I killed you. I watched you die. I buried you with my son. And I resurrected you as a whole new creation. You're not the same old person. Oh, that flesh suit still tries to do some of the same old things. Well, how am I going to overcome that? You're not. Stop trying. How long have you been trying to overcome drugs, overcome pornography, overcome whatever it is? Fill in the blank. How long has that been working out for you? How long have you been after that? 10 years? 20 years? You hadn't beat it yet. What makes you think you're going to beat it tomorrow? It's been 20 years. I mean, if you're going to whoop it, you'd have whooped it by now. Come on. Use your head, man. How many more decades are you going to give it? How much longer are you going to try to be your own savior, your own deliverer, and own overcomer? Stop it. Stop it. Just get on the boat. Quit trying to steer it. Stop trying to pray to the, to, the, to the captain there. Just rest in the boat. Well, I feel like I need to be doing something. That's religion. This is about relationship, not religion. There's no rudder. Well, what if the wind? Don't worry about it. You're in Christ. I don't even know if they're still around. Anybody old enough to, they may be around, I don't know, so don't be offended. Pearl, optical, anybody remember that? It's like a glass, uh, make glasses, right? Uh, reading glasses, uh, glasses, whatever. Are they still even in existence? Oh, they are? Yeah. Pearl, optical. Pearl, optical. What's that got to do with anything? I don't know, I just thought that's it. No, I, I was, uh, that was on me this morning. God says they need a lens change. The reason some things are really blurry to you, you need a lens change. And the reason it's pearl, optical, what, what is the gate that enters into the kingdom? What is every gate, those 12 gates of the New Jerusalem, what are those gates made out of? You think that's accidental? You ever seen what a pearl comes from? Some of you eat those things. I have tried. So now what I do when my family gathers to do that, we got certain holidays like January the 1st, and they throw those oysters on the grill, and they pop them open, you know, once they crack a bit from the heat. Makes them a little safer, they say. And you throw that oyster on a saltine cracker with a little hot sauce, tartar sauce. Whoo! Man, I love tartar sauce, so I just take me a saltine cracker and put that sauce, hot sauce on it, and I'm just as happy as the guy next to me swallowing the oysters. And I'm right out there by the grill, but mine's missing a key ingredient. But it tastes good, and I'm just as happy. And I actually tell them that mine tastes the same as theirs, because theirs don't have no taste. But anyway, whatever. All I'm saying is that oyster is a pretty, pretty weird-looking thing. But you know how it got to be a pearl, right? An irritant got into that oyster. And it starts by God's design to excrete something on that irritant. And that through that thing that irritated you, the most precious pearl was formed. Now, out of all the things in the earth that God could have chose to make the, the, the entrance into the kingdom, the gate, out of, he chose pearls. I believe God's trying to tell us something that those things that have tried to hurt you, to wound you, to irritate you, to destroy you, I will take those things and I will make it an entrance into the kingdom. I will make that a pearl in your life. And see, listen to me, listen. And, 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 that, and that parable of Jesus, the, the field with the pearl of great price, people really mess that up, man. I promise you, you reread it. You're the pearl. Jesus said, I will take all the dirt, I will take all the sin that comes with them just to get them. I'm going to pay for that pearl a great price. You're the pearl of great price. You're the treasure of God. He loves you, and he gave his life for you. And God wanted to prophesy his love to every one of you. You need new lens. 
You need to see things differently. You need to see yourself. I've told my wife so many times. I said, if I, if I could give you one thing, because, listen, I, I'm not all that in a bag of chips, but I, I'm not going to fake that like I'm not who I am. I don't know why I'm so good. <laughs> Come here, baby girl. Come here. I, we've been married over 38 years. Now, I'm not telling you I'm God's gift of marriage or none of that deal, so don't you guys get mad at me or nothing, okay? I mean, she knows I'm not perfect. I'm pretty darn close, but she knows I'm not. <laughs> Teasing again, okay? She's always told me that I, but I tell her, I mean, she, she's not going to stand up here. I'm not, we're not going to lie to you. And I'm not saying because you don't do exactly like we do that you're a bad husband or a bad wife. I'm not saying that. Just let me talk about me for a second. I'm not saying this, I ain't in your Kool-Aid. I'm in my Kool-Aid. So I'm not comparing myself to you. You got it? But every day for all these years, except for a few days I was under anesthesia or something, where I didn't have the ability to, like I just went through in April, home heart surgery. Um, but I, I tell her every day, numerous times a day, well, I tell you every day of your life. I love you. <laughs> and what else? <laughs> She's trying to figure out which one I'm talking about that she can say publicly. Of how, how, how good looking she is to me, how beautiful she is to me. And she is like, in these last years, she's gotten almost like, you know, my eyes are not good, she says. I'm, or I'm just saying that out of habit or whatever. But it's not. I've told her in the last 30 days, I said, if I could give you any kind of gift, really, I would give you the ability to see how I see you through my eyes. If you could see how I see you, then you would know why I tell you every day, I love you, how beautiful you are to me. You're the best thing ever happened to me other than Jesus Christ. And I mean that. I, I, I mean that. And, and, but she just seemed like can't see herself through my eyes. Now, I, I say that to say to you that, that Jesus is the bridegroom. We're the bride. The gift that he's trying to give you today, the gift of righteousness, the gift of grace, is the ability for you to see yourself through his eyes. How much he adores you. How much he cares for you. God says, I look at you and I see nothing wrong with you. Because everything that was wrong with you, I killed at the cross. You go now. You go, well, I do. God doesn't see that. All he sees is Christ because he put you, he put Christ in you and then put you in Christ. And I end with this. Listen, all of us grew up mostly in church hearing that grace is this, unmerited favor, right? Can't be. That if grace is unmerited favor, that means Jesus never had any. Because he grew in grace and in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. You're telling me that Jesus needed unmerited favor with God? No, he is God. So all I'm saying is that that would make Jesus disqualified to be the Savior because that means that he's got some problems and issues and so God had to give him grace. No, no. So the point is this. There's got to be a better definition of grace. Now, the better definition is, to me, divine presence of God that enables us to be what God is wants us to be, and that's like Christ. Conformed to the image of his son. So listen, so God put Christ in you, and then he put you in Christ. It's the third time I've told you, because I know you learn by repetition. So he put Christ in you, and then put you in Christ, so that you would always have divine presence to form you into that image of his son. You're never without God, ever. I don't care what you feel, don't feel, you're never without him. But a while ago, when I said to you, okay, now I'm going to prophesy to you. If you I, don't, I don't mean this to demean you, anybody, but I felt like rain of the presence manifested 
and I saw your reaction of many of you across the auditorium, you felt the presence. And that's why a lot of times I'll make comment. The reason I do that is so that you know that what you're feeling right there is not air conditioning. Giving you those God bumps. Those are not goose bumps, they're God bumps. What, what, where's that? I mean, it, that's not a, it's a big deal to me. It's a huge deal. It's not that I need that to convince myself that he's here. I know he's here. But God loves you and he's in you. And I'm asking you today to rest in that. I'm asking you to stop struggling, fighting, and straining, and clawing. I'm asking you to stop trying to deliver yourself. I'm asking you to just, if you never entered into the ark, into Christ, I'm asking you to receive that greatest gift of all and just enter in by faith to Christ. Be saved today. Receive him. I'm asking you to do that. I feel like it's one of those services where Crawford a headlock me after service where you get to start. There's so many of you. There's somebody you're sitting in this section. There's in every section really, but just be encouraged. Just be encouraged. Don't don't believe the lies of the enemy. I, I'm gonna say this, and I, I almost feel like you're in this section. I don't even know you. I don't know anything in the natural. But I'm gonna say this. There's somebody, and I think you're on this section, but there's somebody like you're the first in your family to go to college. You're like the first in your family to go to college. I'm not going to illuminate you or make you, and I'm sure there's probably people in here that that's, that would fit. And that's, that's a great accomplishment. But you know, a lot of times people say, well, I was the first in my family to graduate college, and that's a big deal. That's a wonderful accomplishment. So I applaud that. But I heard God saying there's something even greater than that. It's to be the first in your family to graduate into the rest of Christ and just fail out on religion. Be the first in your family to, 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 to walk in the rest of God. And, you're, and as much as sometimes like when, in one, one, like when one person in a family graduates college, you'll look behind them and it'll be like, well, here we go. And all of a sudden, and before long, you, you'll have a whole family that's like, it's almost like expected. Everybody's got to graduate college. You, you, you've seen that, right? But I'm telling you in the spirit, if you get a hold of what I'm saying, you'll be the first in your family to get a hold of this. And you'll look behind you and all your family will be on that art with you. They'll all be on that with you.